I guess we can start. How are people doing? Are you, are you guys going stir crazy? Yes. Um, Matt, you're doing well, but going stir crazy. Oh yeah. Oh, just peachy. Yes. Um, kind of very, very much stir crazy. Yeah. All right. Um, probably better to be in Alexandria with Antony and Cleopatra, <laughs> but, um, I think we all are. And, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna go, uh, stir crazier, um, as time passes, but it should all be over by Easter, right? So that'll be good. Oh, New Hampshire, New Hampshire just got the stay, the, uh, stay in place call from the governor. Oh, really? Um, yeah. so all locked down now. So, yeah, basically the same as Massachusetts and New York. That is, supermarkets and liquor stores are okay, but yep. as little as possible. And in uh, Massachusetts, pot stores are also okay. Um, so, um, you know, these are, these are the essential things. Um, okay, Matthew. Um, hilarious. Yeah, so who's in New Hampshire? Uh, me, sorry. Okay. That's me. And Prue, are you in New Hampshire too? I don't. Yeah, I am. Okay. I had no idea about this thing. All right. To keep up with the times. Yeah. You know, night at midnight, New Hampshire's in the stay in place. Okay. So are you allowed to take walks as long as you're six feet away from other people? Yep. Okay, that's good. Um, so it's a good idea. It's gonna get old fast, but it's a good idea. Um, and a couple of you are still in Waltham on campus or near campus, so that must be kind of awful too. <sighs> so sorry, you guys. Um, we probably elected the wrong president. I don't know, maybe not. Um, all right, back to Annie and Cleopatra. Good. Take your mind off things. Um, so I think we're going to have to figure out some way of, of going faster, which is a little bit too bad because uh, I think going through it as closely as we're doing has been a good thing. But um, so Antony has just told Cleopatra that, um, that Fulvia is dead. And then uh, Cleopatra has this um, really wonderfully typical... Um, anticipation or she wonderfully typical application of Antony's response to Fulvia's death to herself uh, which is that and, and I think it's, it's really a good way of getting Cleopatra's character which is that she is at the same time oh, she's at the same time Self, interested in herself as she always is that is she's um, she is her vitalism and she's a very very vital person um, takes the form of uh, a kind of overflowing of her own self-delight uh, self-delight may not be quite the right word but her her delight in the life that she lives 
and the life that she lived in, in the erotic life that she lives. She loves the erotic life that she lives. And she loves it so much that it kind of overflows. Um, and she loves the fact that it overflows. Again, to use that term or flow, she loves the fact that it overflows. That could be a definition of erotic generosity. If you think of, you know, a standard thing to say is that some people are uh, erotically selfish and some people are erotically generous. And that to be erotically selfish means to only care about your own experience and to be erotically generous means to care about um, the, someone else's experience. And that that is a, a kind of standard or even cliched. Notice, by the way, there's a D at the end of cliched when you're using it as past participle. Um, a kind of cliched uh, thing to say about erotic life. But I think what you're getting in Cleopatra, and maybe in both Annie and Cleopatra, is the insight that that those things are not necessarily opposite to each other. Those things are not necessarily the um, uh, a choice, an exclusive choice that you have to make, but that what erotic delight which is how Cleopatra lives. What erotic delight consists in is pleasure, both is, is sharing of your own pleasure and sharing the other person's pleasure. That is that it's not, oh, what matters is that I have pleasure and you're there to service me, or it's, it's that you have pleasure and that I'm there to service you, but that um, erotic delight is where each takes pleasure in the pleasure of the other, and therefore it becomes a kind of spiral that you take pleasure in the pleasure of the other, and they take pleasure in the pleasure that you're taking in the pleasure of the other, and you take pleasure in the pleasure that they're taking in the pleasure that you're taking in their pleasure, and so forth. So that would be the kind of erotic over overflow that you get in the characters of Antony and Cleopatra. And I think in a sense, it's um, the, uh, that it's um, what happens in any play or any fiction, which is a love story. It doesn't even have to be fiction. Any story, any narrative, which is a love story, which is that the audience takes pleasure in the erotic pleasure in, um, by erotic here, I mean love, not necessarily sexual, although for Anthony Cleopatra, it, it is sexual, but in the erotic pleasure that characters are taking in each other. So that if you like a rom-com, and who doesn't? Um, not that kinky, but maybe. Um, if you like um, a rom-com, um, the... Um, uh, what you're liking about it is the fact that the OTP are, are um, getting the joy that we want them to get. So we take joy in their joy. And what makes them the OTP is that um, they take joy in each other's joy as well. 
And I think, obviously, if there's an OTP in Shakespeare, it's Antony and Cleopatra. Well, maybe it's not obvious, but I'm going to say there are lots of OTPs, um, one true pairs in Shakespearean drama. Usually there are many true pairs. Um, but Antony and Cleopatra is the um, greatest example of all of um, a one true pair. But for those of you who, who took Shakespeare with me in the fall, um, there is that amazing section where I think Shakespeare is very explicit about this in A Midsummer Night's Dream, when um, Oberon and Titania are each berating the other for coming to sponsor the erotic life between um, um, Theseus and Hippolyta. And so Titania says, I know that you're here because your um, buskined mistress, Hippolyta, is about to marry Theseus and you've come to um, give her joy. And, she's, and he says to her, how can you, um, for shame, glance at my credit with Hippolyta when I know that you're here because you want to see Theseus erotically happy with Hippolyta? So they're the audience. Oberon and Titania are the audience for Theseus and Hippolyta. But they're also metaphorically the lovers of Theseus and Hippolyta as well. In addition to that, of course, they're doubled, so they are Theseus and Hippolyta. And all of that, being the audience, being the um, lovers of and being identical with the characters whose um, uh, erotic happiness they are attempting to sponsor... All of that is suggesting uh, a way that Shakespeare sees erotic life at its best, which is um, an undoing of the difference between self-centered and other-centeredness. I don't want to say selfishness um, because that's too negative a word, but self-centeredness and other-centeredness in erotic life. To be centered on the other is to be centered on yourself. To be centered on yourself is to be centered on the other. So here we see that in Cleopatra. You know, and in Cleopatra is the, is the play that tells this story, which is usually a comic story. It's the play that tells this story as tragedy. Um, you could say that Romeo and Juliet also tells the comic story as tragedy, but I don't think that would be right because the tragedy in Romeo and Juliet is external. The tragedy in Romeo and Juliet is mm -hmm. that they are in a world which isn't um, where other people's conflicts and hatreds and um, stupidity is preventing them from being in a comedy. But in Antony and Cleopatra, it's their commitment to each other is internal to the tragedy. Their love for each other is internal to the tragedy, but it is um, nevertheless a comic kind of love. So if there's any play in Shakespeare, you could say that all of Shakespeare is um, a story of um, life against death. That is, that there, uh, there is the... Um, deaths that occur and that end tragedies, and there's the life and the liveliness that ends comedy. But Antony and Cleopatra is the tragedy in which 
in 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 which um, vitality fights morbidity or mortality um, at least to a draw and maybe more so. So it's the one tragedy where where an erotic principle that seems central to comedy is actually central to the tragedy as well. And um, so um, Matt says, if it's comic, should we assume it's either satirized or fake? No, the whole point is that I think it's it's Shakespeare's greatest love story. And... um, what it one of the things that it's suggesting is uh, to quote Song of Songs, um, strong as death is love, and um, in this case, I think that's true. That is that you have a tragedy, um, but it's a tragedy in which love is as deep or as real as death. That if you think of something like. Othello or Hamlet or even Macbeth, um, what turns out to be the case is that tragedy in those plays um, overwhelms love. Um, Hamlet being the most obvious. Hamlet loves Ophelia, but um, despite love... I can't get the division. I'm just getting the sound. Mm. Um... Okay, well, uh, sorry, you don't get to see my pretty face. Um, if um, um, oh yeah, mute. So yeah, if if you um, see Hamlet as uh, maybe the, um, uh, the 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 example of this, Hamlet loves Ophelia. But um, unfortunately, there's tragic business that that trumps his love for Ophelia and um, causes her to die, eventually causes him to die. The fact that he can't make his love for Ophelia his primary motive um, is what leads to her suicide. The fact that um, he has to do something else besides um, pursue his love for her leads eventually to his death. Um, so what happens in a play like Hamlet is that love is defeated by death. It's not clear that, and what happens in comedies, you could say, is that death is defeated by love. Um, but Antony and Cleopatra is a tragedy in which it's nevertheless the case that um, love may at least fight death to a standstill and perhaps might um, defeat death, um, as, as we'll see when we get to, certainly when we get to Act 4. But just what Cleopatra's speech then is, O oh, most false love, where be the sacred vials thou shouldst fill with sorrowful water? Now I see, I see in Fulvia's death how mine received shall be. That's Cleopatra, you could say, being... Um, as she always is, recurring to her to herself. That is, something is happening, and now she thinks about herself. I see in Fulvia's death how mine received shall be. But on the end, so she's talking about her death. She's um, talking about herself. But she's also talking about Fulvia, and she's also um, teasing, but in a somewhat serious mode, teasing. Um, Antony is... Um, 
Antony uh, for whether he loves her or not. Oh, most false love. What Antony thought, and Antony, Antony is playing catch up with Cleopatra throughout the entire play, which in comedies, the men are always playing catch up with the women. Um, so Antony thought that Cleopatra would uh, feel some satisfaction in the fact that her rival is now gone, that, Aunt, that Fulvia is dead. Um, but her response is to say that his love is false, that you can't trust Antony, that if he's going to treat her that way, then we see what he's really like. Um, but Antony also gets that she's being a little bit um, either teasing him too much or being too quarrelsome. So his response, quarrel no more, but be prepared to know the purposes I bear, which are, or cease, as you shall give the advice. So um, here's what I want to do, but I'm going to listen to you. By the fire that quickens Nihilus' slime, I go from hence thy soldier servant, making peace or war as thou effects. So I will do whatever it is um, that you want. And um, the fire that, um, that quickens Nihilus' slime is again another reference to what we were looking at before, even as the overflowing Nile presageth famine. Um, remember in the, in the banter between uh, Charmian and Iris, um, Cleopatra uh, becomes the drama queen that she is. Cut my lace, Charmian, come! That is, she's about to faint. Cut my lace, Charmian, come. She needs, she needs to be able to breathe. Ah, but let it be. She's fine. I am quickly ill and well, so Antony loves. Um, Nicole, we are at Act 1, Scene 3, Line 72. So, my precious queen forbear, Antony replies, um, um, and give true evidence to his love, which stands an honorable trial. So if you see that um, my love will continue, even as I have to do this thing, believe that I love you. Cleopatra, right. That's basically her answer. So Fulvia told me. That's what Fulvia said, that, um, yeah, you obviously loved her. Um, so once again, she is the one who doesn't want Antony to forget that Fulvia has died. I prithee, turn aside and weep for her, then bid adieu to me and say the tears belong to Egypt. So if you're directing this, you might want Antony, you might want Antony to be on the verge of weeping and just barely keeping it together so he can talk to Cleopatra, but still really full of tears over the death of Fulvia. Or you might want him being really good at not being upset about Fulvia's death, although he obviously was, and Cleopatra castigating him for it. Um, I think it would be interesting either way. But say, And say the tears belong to Egypt. So... Mourn for Fulvia, but say that you're mourning because you have to live me. leave me. Good now, play one scene of excellent dissembling and let it look like perfect honor. So Elvie asks, how are we supposed to understand the comic love as love with a happy ending, or does it have more to do with Aristotle's definition of comedy? 
are we supposed to understand comedy in its classical definition or just how people generally take it when you talk about it in this class? Um, I'm not talking about it in a classical sense. Um, if I'm talking about it at all technically, um, I mean Shakespearean comedy, which is comedy um, which ends in marriage. And um, with, peop- with um, uh, again, to recur to... A Midsummer Night's Dream, but many, many other comedies. Love's Labor's Loss would be another one. Eh, I think pro- probably any comedy. Um, there, there is to to quote the famous line: "Death is also in Arcadia," and um, all of Shakespeare's comedies are almost. I can't offhand think of an exception. All of Shakespeare's comedies um, acknowledge death. And um, the fact of death is always an issue in the comedies. If you think of Twelfth Night, the first thing we learn is that Olivia is mourning the death of her brother. If you think of um, A Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, what we know is that the child that Theseus and Hippolyta uh, will have is going to be a major character in Greek tragedy, namely Hippolytus, and that terrible things are going to happen. Um, so that death is always present as a risk in a comedy. Um, but um, the um, uh, idea is to be life-affirming in the face of death, and if you're life-affirming in the face of death, um, death measures how strong the affirmation of life is. So that's the Song of Songs idea. Strong as death is love. That um, if you're life-affirming because you don't know that there's such a thing as death, that would be Adam and Eve in Milton's Paradise Lost. Adam says um, that uh, he and Eve are, are talking about the fruit of the tree of knowledge, and Adam says... We're not um, supposed to eat the fruit of that tree, he says, on pain of death denounced. And then he says, whatever thing death be, a dreadful thing, no doubt. Whatever death be, a dreadful thing, no doubt. So Adam and Eve love each other, and they're told that if they eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge, they'll die. But they don't know what that means. They have no sense of death, and therefore they have no sense of uh, what it is that is, th- th- they can't measure their love until, in Paradise Lost, until after the fall. Um, they can't measure their love by the fact that it's love in spite of death because they don't know what death is. Romeo and Juliet, um, Nicole is asking whether it's another um, play where love and death are, are equal in um, importance. I think it is, but as I say, I think um, one is not governing the other in Romeo and Juliet. It may well be that Romeo's suicide when he thinks Juliet is is dead is a way of affirming love, but it's certainly not a way of affirming life. And uh, Juliet's um, suicide when after Romeo's is also a way of affirming love. It might be a little bit more life-affirming paradoxically, than Romeo's. Um, but in Antony and Cleopatra, love is life-affirming. And that is a general fact about comedy in Shakespeare rather than in tragedy, is that love is life-affirming. Um, 
love as um, measured by death, you get, of course you get that in the tragedies. That is what makes tragedy tragedy is that someone, uh, someone the main character love loves dies or a main character whom everyone loves dies. Um, but it's not, but love is not life affirming in the tragedies. Uh, you know, you could say the Macbeths might be almost the parody of love as life affirming because um, they love each other. So they are going to become king and queen, but there's nothing life affirming in the way that they become king and queen. Um, it's the opposite of life affirming. It's death affirming. So it, they may think it's life affirming, but it isn't. And that's hence the Baron scepter um, that, um, that Macbeth will hold all his life. But in Antony and Cleopatra, again, just to say it one more time, it's a tragedy in which love is life affirming. And that is, I think, really unusual and um, really amazing about this play. That it's a tra- that it's a tr- it's fully a tragedy and it's fully life affirming, and the um, re- the relationship between what's tragic about it and what's life affirming about it is internal. Um, it's the same thing that's life affirming and tragic, and um, you can ask which wins out or or um, are they equally matched or are they um, inextricable from each other. But um, you may still want to ask at the end uh, whether you see the play ultimately as a play about uh, characters we love dying, or is it a play about characters dying whom we love? That is, is it ultimately a play about um, characters that we love dying, or is it ultimately a play about characters who die um, who nevertheless... Um, affirm love in the strongest and most life-affirming ways. But um, wait till the end of the play. It's too early to see, to see this, but it is, it's not too early to see how Cleopatra turns everything into um, teasing, where teasing is her erotic mode with Antony, and she's going to tease him to the very, very end. They will tease each other to the very, very end. That's not the only thing they do, but it's something they do to the limit. So, um, so play one excellent scene of uh, one scene of excellent dissembling, and let it look like perfect honor. Antony, you'll heat my blood, no more. Um, that's a nicely ambiguous line. It could mean something like, you'll get me angry um, by teasing me now in this situation. Um, or it can mean you'll get me excited. Well, it literally means you'll get me excited, but excited in what way? Cleopatra, no, nah, that's not good enough. You can do better yet, but this is meatly. Now by my sword, says... Um, Antony and Cleopatra says, and Target, yeah, just your usual BS. Still he mends, but this is not the best. Look pretty charming how this Herculean Roman does become the carriage of his chafe. So look how how um, look how beautiful he is when he's angry. Antony tries to stay calm. I'll leave you, lady. And then she has a great speech. 
courteous lord one word sir you and i must part but that's not it so she wanted to say one more thing to him sir you and i must part but that's not it sir you and i have loved but there's not it so there's that you know well something it is i would so she can't remember what she wanted to say to him um this is like the sublime version of Polonius saying, by the mass, I was about to say something. That is that Shakespeare, we've talked about this before, one, but just to put it explicitly, the history of all representational forms, um, sculpture, painting, comic books, movies, plays, narrative, novels, poems, um, is in part a history of creators of those forms, artists, noticing things about life that have never, about, about real life that never have been represented before. So that um, Shakespeare, for example, is the first person to show people forgetting um, their lines or seeming to forget their lines on stage. So, um, here we have, he's already done that with Polonius, but now he does it with Cleopatra. And there's something she wanted to say to him. She really did want to say something to him. Um, and it was going to be the very last thing that she was going to say, but now it's slipped her mind. Curtis Lord, one word. And then she's thinking, sir, you and I must part, but that's not it. She starts her speech, but no, that's not where she was going. Sir, you and I have loved, but there's not it. That you know well, something it is I would, she interrupts herself. Oh, my oblivion is a very Antony, and I am all forgotten. So notice we talked about the um, term an Antony. So this is an, a version of it, a very Antony. My oblivion, my forgetfulness, it's a very Antony. My, where's my mind? It's behaving just like Antony. It's forgetting me. So I'm forgotten by my own oblivion. I am forgotten by my own forgetfulness. And then Antony um, kind of in grimly teasing her back, but that your royalty holds idleness your subject. So notice again, one of those your um, phrases, um, their deities, your royalty but that your royalty holds idleness your subject, I should take you for idleness yourself. I would think you're calling me oblivion, I'm calling you idleness, the allegorical representation of idleness, um, except that idleness is your subject, um, that uh, idleness worships you. And Cleopatra says, well, it's not so easy. To sweating labor to bear such idleness so near the heart as Cleopatra this. Um, so, yeah, I agree. Idleness, teasing, um, not being serious. That's who I am. And that's a really serious experience. It's really hard to bear such idleness so near the heart as Cleopatra this. But, sir, forgive me. Now she gets serious for a second. But sir, forgive me, since my becomings kill me when they do not I well to you. So if you don't like what I'm saying, that makes me really unhappy. 
Your honor calls you hence. Therefore, be deaf to my unpitied folly, and all the gods go with you. Notice the grammatical form of all the gods go with you, what, what, what we call that. Oh, is it the like second person imperative? Or Third whatever? person imperative. Third person imperative. Yeah. So it's yeah. Um, and again, we understand it. It's it's not something that's that is um, uh, um, opaque to us in English, but it is also it is something that's that's rare. But here she's using it again. You get it all over the place in, in Cleopatra far more than in any other Shakespeare play. Um, all the gods go with you. Upon your sword sit laurel victory, another third person imperative. And smooth success be strewed before your feet, another third person imperative. Antony, first person imperative, let us go. Come, he says to her, another amazing image. Our separation so abides and flies that thou residing here goes yet with me and I, hence fleeting, here remain with thee, away. So um, the, he says what is going to link us is our separation. That is that every moment that we're separate is a moment where we will live in separation. So our separation comes with you and I mean, sorry, comes with me and abides with you so that we are connected by the fact that we are both together within our separation. And I think that that's not, you know, you could take that as just cleverness. Um, anyone know um, Dunn's uh, Valediction for Bidding Morning? The famous, so it's the famous image of the compass that um, his wife is like the fixed foot. You know, um, you know it, um, Grace. His wife is like the fixed foot of the compass, and he's like the foot that um, the other foot of the compass that draws a circle. Um, and they're connected so that um, her um, being at home and him being away nevertheless connects them the way the two feet of a compass are connected. That's Dunn's image. Um, for, um, Antony, the image is probably a little bit more emotionally, um, real or convincing because it's something like, um, we'll be aware of our separation the whole time. We'll both be sad about this separation. So we will both be having the same experience at the same time and sharing in that experience and it's the shared experience of separation that we'll both be having. Okay, so off he goes. Now to Rome. Enter Octavius, reading a letter, Lepidus and their train. So Lepidus is the third person in the triumvirate. Um, do we want to do some reading, volunteers? Um, oh, that cool. Who knew? Okay, so Nicole, you can be Caesar and um, someone uh, should be Lepidus. I will call on someone if you don't volunteer. Okay, Ari. Um, Cassie, you, you can be next. So Nicole and Ari will be Caesar and Lepidus. So go for it. You may see Lepidus and henceforth know it is not Caesar's natural vice to hate 
our great competitor. From Alexandria, this is the news. He fishes, drinks, and wastes the lamps of night in revel. Is not more manlike than Cleopatra, nor the queen of Ptolemy, more womanly than he. Hardly gave audience or vouchsafe it to think he had partners. You shall find there a man who is the abstract of all faults that all men know, all men follow. Okay, so just one sec there. So remember um, the not he, the queen that we saw before. Here's another instance of... This is the Roman view of the um, gender fluidity, let's say, of Antony and Cleopatra in their relation to each other. Um, All they're doing is getting drunk, and um, he is no more male than Cleopatra is, nor is she any more female, the Queen of Ptolemy, any more womanly than um, than he. So what what we're getting here in uh, 10 lines is a summary of the first three scenes. Um, okay, Lepidus. Sorry, I have just a quick question. Is yeah. that like that um, that literary device with like the A, B, B, A? Chiasmus. Chiasmus, um, is that this or not really? Well, so chiasmus is actually a device in uh, uh, which is about word order, but um, it has the effect of kind of telescoping things together. And I think you're particularly thinking of the Afro-Ben poem, the Hermaphrodite poem, which is oh, which, yeah. which yeah. precisely is about um, a gendered chiasmus where if you, if you compress things, so it's male, female, female, male in that poem, it's actually not quite, it's the names. Um, then you get a kind of exchange of significance. So usually that just happens verbally. Though fallen on evil days, on evil days though fallen, to take a famous line from Milton. Um, So that's chiasmus, fallen, evil days, evil days, fallen. But what it means is that you're falling in both directions into the middle, which is the evil days. So the thought is the same. It's not, it's not structurally the same, but the thought is the same. So yeah, um, Eric. I must not think there are evils enough to darken all his goodness. His faults in him seem as the spots of heaven, more fiery by night's blackness, hereditary rather than purchased, what he cannot change than what he chooses. You are too indulgent. Let's grant it. Uh, let's grant, sorry, you are too indulgent. Let's grant it is not amiss to tumble on the bed of Ptolemy, to give a kingdom for a mirth, to sit and keep the turn of tippling with a slave, to reel the streets at noon and stand the buffet with knaves that the smell buffet, of the sweat. Buffet. Not the buffet, the buffet. And stand the, the, and stand the buffet with, oh, and stand the buffet with knaves that smell of sweat. Say this becomes him, as his composure must be rare indeed. Whom whom these things cannot blemish, yet must Antony. No way excuse his foils when we do bear so great weight in his lightness. If he filled his vacancy with the voluptuousness, full surfeits, and the dryness of his bones, call on him for it. But to confound such time that drums him from his sport and speaks as loud as his own state and ours, it is t- tis to be t- chid as we rate boys, who, being mature in knowledge, Pawn their experience to their present pleasure, and so rebel to judgment. Okay, so basically, what he's saying is, um, uh, Lepidus is, is as usual trying to mediate between them. What you're going to find 
in Rome is that there are people who are trying to mediate between Antony and Caesar. And Lepidus is the first. And he's saying, look, he's got his problems. Who doesn't? But he's a great person. Um, and it's, and uh, you shouldn't um, um, be so... Uh, um, uh, you, you shouldn't castigate him so much. And, and uh, Caesar says, no, you're wrong. Um, look at all the stuff he's doing in Egypt, and that's all the stuff that we knew, drinking with slaves and so on. Um, and say that that's okay. Still, the problem is that we do bear so great weight in his lightness. That is, that um, that's an oxymoron, that he's being light and his lightness is very heavy upon me. Um, I have to bear the great weight of his lightness. Notice that he's echoing Cleopatra's line to sweating labor to bear such idleness so near the heart. So both of them have a way of saying that, um, uh, that there's this strange oxymoron that's something that should be easy and well something that should be light unimportant not oppressive for both of them lightness antony's lightness is oppressive idleness oppresses cleopatra antony's lightness oppresses caesar um if he filled his vacancy with his voluptuousness full surfeits and the dryness of his bones call on him for it. So if it were a victimless crime, if there was nothing he had to do, and he were simply um, having fun in this voluptuous way, fine, he would be the one who would have to pay for it with um, gout and hangover and so on. But to do it, to confound such time that drums him from his sport, so he's he's got stuff he has to do, and um, for him to ignore that, that shows um, that he's like a child who pawns their, pawn, like children who pawn their experience to their present pleasure. That is, they know they should be doing, they should be writing their papers, but instead um, they're, they're partying. And, and so they're rebels to judgment. So Antony's being just like that. Um, Cassie, you can be the messenger. Lepidus. Uh, here's more news. Thy biddings have been done, and every hour, most noble Caesar, shalt thou have report how tis abroad. Pompey is strong at sea, and it appears he is beloved of those that only have feared Caesar. To the ports the discontents repair, and the men's reports give him much wronged. So what's going on? We're learning something. Caesar is, is, the messenger is, is bringing us up to date as to what's going on, which is what. Um, so there, it sounds like a military rival is like increasing in power because they're no longer threatened because Julius, they were only afraid of Julius Caesar. So now that he's dead, they're like, now we can challenge Rome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the Caesar there is Octavius. That is, he's beloved of those that only have feared Caesar. Um, so they feared you, but they love him and, uh, um, love might be a stronger motive for them to go to his side than fear to stay on your side. Um, 
So, so uh, things are in trouble. War is coming. As in um, Hamlet, it looks like that's going to be the plot. That is that, okay, so this is going to be a story about war. Um, and um, and uh, just as Hamlet looks like it's going to start with a war with Norway, it looks like this play is going to be the war between Pompey and the Triumvirate. Um, okay, uh, Caesar? I should have known no less. It has been taught from us that it, it had been taught us from the prim, from the primal state that he which is wished until he were and the abdomen never he, loved. So no, it's he that is. Um, that he, sorry, that he which is. Yes. So the person he, who now is in charge. He, that okay. That he which is was wished until. He, he were and the ebbed man never loved till never worth love comes feared by being lacked this common body like to a vagabond flag upon the stream goes to and back lackeying the varying tide to rot itself with motion so no so the people this is uh one of the um uh speech this is an anti-democratic speech uh whether shakespeare believes it or not um, this is often this is a very often quoted speech for those who think Shakespeare was anti-democratic, um, and the line is basically <coughs> that um, people are never satisfied. Uh, Coriolanus, for those of you who um, who read it last semester, uh, similar situation. Uh, the people are always complaining about whoever is in charge. And they spend all their time um, saying that the very person they voted out is now the person that they wish they had. Um, so it so it's always working that way. Um, Pompey is the common body are the common people, um, and um, he that is was wished until he were is he that is now the ruler. They wished him to be the ruler. He that is was wished until he were, until they got him. So um, that's what always happens. People wish for something, and when they get it, they um, stop wishing for it, and they wish for the opposite. Um, second, um, Cassie, you can be the second messenger. Caesar, I bring thee word, Menacrates and Menace, famous pirates make the sea serve them, which they ear and wound with keels of every kind. Many hot inroads they make in Italy. The borders maritime lack blood to think on it and flush youth revolt. No vessel can peep forth, but tis as soon taken as seen for Pompey's name strikes more than could his war resisted. So get to it is what the messenger says. The very fact that Pompey is doing so well makes him seem unstoppable and everyone is going on to his side so caesar antony leave thy list leave thy lascivious wassails when thou once was beaten from modena where thou slewest hersius and pansa consuls at thy heel did famine follow whom thou fought who thou whom thou fought against. against sorry yeah fought against Thou daintily brought up with patience more than savages could suffer. Thou didst drink the stale of horses and the gilded puddle which beasts would cough at. 
they palette then did they palette then did did Dane the roughest berry on the rudest hedge. Yeah, like the stag when snow the pasture sheets, the bark of the tr- the barks of the trees thou browsed. On the Alps it is reported thou didst eat strange flesh which some did die to look on. And all this, it wounds thine honor that I speak it now, was born so like a soldier that thy cheek so much as linked not. So Antony is now just drinking fine wines and um, was sailing with Cleopatra. But here's what he was like before. You'll, you'll all, you all remember this from reading in the North, um, that he drank horse piss when there was nothing else to drink. That is, drink the stale of horses. Um, that, um, you, that he ate um, bark and berries um, and, um, and walked through the snow. He was just an amazing warrior. And look at him now. Um, now, why does he address Antony when Antony isn't there? Is it an apostrophe? Yeah, exactly. So it's an apostrophe, which is um, a mode of address um, where you address something that... Ord- I mean, you, you can do an apostrophe to a real person who's there, but generally it's a kind of summoning up of... Um, either a person who's not there or of an inanimate object, um, like a Grecian urn, for example, um, and you are treating them as though you were speaking to them even though you aren't. And it's something that we do all the time. Just think of um, all the times that uh, um, you're, you are alone cussing someone um, because of the way they've treated you. And you just think, oh, God, Mom, you are such a jerk. Um, when you're alone. And um, the thing to notice is how often in this play, this is, this is um, another thing to notice, is how often in this play characters apostrophize the absent Antony. Um, over and over again, people will say, um, sometimes present, but more absent than present, they will say, oh, Antony. Oh, um, Antony, what are you doing? Antony, do it. And uh, this, is, I, this is the first time that someone is doing that. Antony, leave thy lascivious wassails. Uh, Lepidus? His pity of him. Let his shames quickly drive him to Rome. Form, Tis time... form, form of that? Grammatical form? Third prison imperative. Good. Tis time we twain did show ourselves in the field, and to that end assemble we immediate counsel. Pompey thrives in our idleness. Tomorrow, Caesar, I shall be furnished to inform you rightly, both what by sea and land I can be able to front this present time. Till which encounter it is my business to. Farewell. Farewell, my lord. What you shall know meantime of stirs abroad, I shall beseech you, sir, to let me be partaker. Doubt not, sir. I knew it for my bond. So notice that even though they're supposed to be equal, Lepidus and Caesar, um, Caesar is really the one in control. And um, when Caesar says, doubt not, sir, Lepidus says, please tell me what's going on. Um, share any, any knowledge with me. And Caesar says, well, of course. Um, but you can see that, that Caesar is the alpha person in this scene. Okay, so in the meantime, um, so, so far... Uh, let's put it this way. Um, so far, 
there are two basic locations that um, the play is taking place in, Alexandria and Rome. And the way we know which location we're at is who's speaking um, in those locations. So this is going back to something that we said talking about Macbeth, which is that scenes are determined by the um, social group within a scene. So they're the Roman scenes with Lepidus and Octavius, and then there are the Alexandrian scenes with Antony and Cleopatra and Charmian and Iris and so on. And we're going back and forth. Um, Samuel Johnson in his preface to Shakespeare, which I didn't have you guys read, um, uh, is defending Shakespeare against the French critics who, and the French playwrights who said Shakespeare was, he, you know, he had a way with words, maybe, but he really didn't understand drama because he never read Aristotle and he didn't know how drama worked. And the particular thing that you need in drama is unity of place because it's just too dizzying to go from place to place. And Johnson responds that anyone who goes to the theater and doesn't get how at this at one point he's in Alexandria and at another point in Rome, so he's particularly using Antony Cleopatra as his example, um, you have to wonder why they would um, even think they were in one place when they went into the theater since they're going into the theater in London. How is it that they're going to say, um, oh, now I'm in Athens. Anyone who can imagine that he's really in Athens, Johnson says, can imagine more. And um, his point is that you don't imagine anything. You're just watching the characters. Um, if you're reading Shakespeare, you will sometimes look at the bottom of the page to see where the scene is taking place, but that's really rare, and it's almost always a distraction when it says, oh, scene in Flint Castle, scene on board ship. You just figure it out from who's talking. Um, so Dr. Johnson was like the first person, or Shakespeare maybe was the first person who realized um, that uh, movies can cut from one place to another and audiences aren't going to say, whoa, what happened? Um, we're just perfectly fine looking at fictional scenes because in some sense we know they're fictional, looking at fictional scenes that are taking place in different places. Um, we're not paying attention to where we are. What characterizes a scene is who is speaking. So here in Act 1, Scene 5, we're back in um, Alexandria, but that just means that we're back with Cleopatra and Charmian and Iris and Mardian, etc. Um, and so we're back to that second group. Okay, volunteer for Cleopatra. Do you need me to call on you? Okay, good. Um, volunteer for Charmian. Okay, I'm going to call on someone. Okay. Um, LV, you be Charmian. Um, volunteer for Mardian. Okay, no, someone besides Nicole. Um, how about um, Sophia? And um, I think that will 
Yeah, Alexis will come in, but we'll we'll cross the Alexan bridge when we come to it. Okay, Cleopatra, go. Charmian. Um, uh, give me give me to drink Mandragora. Okay, what's Mandragora? A uh, mythological beast who scream kill you. Yeah, if you take a lot, it'll kill you. If you take a little, it'll put you to sleep. Um, it's the mandrake root. So she's laughing and she's saying, "Oh yeah, give me, let me, let me drink this." Um, the only answer now to Anthony's absence is drugs. Okay, Charmian. Why, Madame? That I might sleep out this great gap of time. My Anthony is away. Um, too much. Oh, tis treason, Madame. I trust not so. Thou eunuch Mardian. Mardian. What's your highness's pleasure? Not now to hear thee sing. I take no pleasure in aught a eunuch has. Okay, so stop there. Stop, 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 stop. Um, so why, um, what's the, what's the basic Renaissance theory about eunuchs? Do you know why there are eunuchs in Shakespeare's day as opposed to in, um, Cleopatra's day? Do you know why there are eunuchs at all? You, you just thought, oh yeah, eunuchs, Game of Thrones, sure. Um, that makes sense. Of course you need a eunuch. Um, why would anyone do that to, to, uh, to a boy? No one knows? Oh, is it, is it so that they like don't like um, get involved with the women who are in the royal court or whatever? Yeah, so so the um, ancient reason is so that you can have men who are not going to be, they, they will be unsullied. Um, they will not be distracted by attraction to the women who they nevertheless, especially in harems and so on, are controlling. Um, so um, they are... Uh, males who are trustworthy because they don't have sexual desire. That's the theory. Cassie, was your hand up? Well, yeah, I just, I thought there was also something, I don't know if this is just a different thing or just like a thing that didn't happen, but um, like it, it being desirable to have like men whose voices never change, like who, whose voices don't drop, basically. Yeah, so I don't believe that that is the reason that they, uh, just as a factual matter, I don't believe that's the reason that there were eunuchs in ancient times. I don't think it was for their singing, but that is the reason that there are eunuchs in Shakespeare's time. That is that what you get is a male voice that doesn't change um, or only changes a little bit. Um, because the, the change in men's voices comes from testosterone as, um, in puberty. And, um, for eunuchs, uh, their voices retain a kind of, um, that their bodies are male, so they get more, um, resonance, but the pitch of their voice, the timbre is no longer the timbre of a boy, um, but the pitch is the pitch of um, of an unchanged boy's voice. And so they are particularly valued as singers 
Um, the closest you get now, and you can hear what um, they probably sounded like. The church really liked Unix and its, and its choirs. Um, the closest you can get now are, are, is the male voice called a countertenor. And lots of pieces that are written for countertenors, um, and they're really, really beautiful. Uh, Philip Glass's Akhmaten, which was at the Met last um, fall, and which you can also find on Spotify. Not quite as good a performance, but still a wonderful performance. Has a countertenor playing uh, the character of Akhmaten. Um, so it's a, so um, it's, a, it's a really interesting and beautiful voice to hear. Um, but that's Cleopatra's joke when she says not now to hear thee sing um, is um, uh, a joke um, about uh, what eunuchs would be like in Shakespeare's day rather than in ancient days. So what's your highness pleasure? Not now to hear thee sing. And um, so that's not my pleasure. And then she goes on, I take no pleasure in aught and eunuch has. What's the joke there? The obvious meaning is um, uh, um, I, I'm not interested in um, anything. Well, this is the obvious meaning anyhow. I'm not interested in anything that a eunuch can offer me. Um, what is it that a eunuch doesn't have? Okay, so you get that joke. Um, so um, that's what she takes pleasure in. What I, so this is a negative, this is putting in the negative, the line would mean I take pleasure in just those things a eunuch does not have. So I take no pleasure in aught and eunuch has. Um, go on, Mart, um, Cleopatra. Wait, I can't hear you. Are you muted? You're muted, Grace. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Tis well for thee that being unseminared, thy freer thoughts may not fly forth from Egypt. Hast thou affections? Okay. Yes, gracious madam. Wait, wait, wait. Stop, stop. Unseminared means what? Are you just too embarrassed or is it too obvious or is it not obvious enough? Like, okay. Th thank you, Cassie. What? Oh, I was saying, like, he doesn't have sexual experience. Well, no. So the word seminar is has the same root as the word semen. And uh, the root is a word that means seed. Um, in French, uh, I know you take German, Nicole, but in French, do you know what it means to sow? Seme, S-E-M-E-R. That's what you do with seeds is you sow them. And um, so the original meaning is the word, um, yes, I have a bird. Um, her name is Zazi. Um, the original meaning is, um, originally means seed, hence the word semen meaning seed as, um, as, it, as it means in the Bible, you know, the seed of Abraham and so on. Um, and to be unseminared means to have that, part of you, if you're male, that produces seed taken away. So um, tis well for thee that being unseminared, thy freer thoughts may not fly forth of Egypt. That is that you are not going to um, have sexual thoughts, 
But this is another, yeah, I'll show you the bird um, at the end of class today. How's that? Um, but this is another um, uh, version of, or it's, a, it's another joke. Um, to fly, um, uh, to fly forth would mean to display sexual arousal. That is to like, like a bird to fly upward. And, um, this, and luckily, um, Mardian can't have an erection. So, um, because he's on seminar. Um, so that's good. It's lucky that, uh, she doesn't have to worry about his, um, displaying his desire for her. And then she starts questioning him. Um, go on, Cleopatra. Hast thou affections? Uh, yes, gracious madam. Indeed? Not indeed, madam, for I can do nothing but what indeed is honest to be done. Yet have I fierce affections and think what Venus did with Mars. Okay, so stop there. That, I think that's a, that's a great moment. That is, um, it turns out, and this also actually seems to be true, that eunuchs are not without, eunuchs do feel sexual frustration. Um, that it's not the case, which was the theory, that um, if they were emasculated as boys, they would never feel sexual desire. So here's a moment, uh, just, just this tiny little moment of great sadness that um, here's Mardian and yeah, he has sexual desire, but there's absolutely nothing he can do about it, nothing at all. But he thinks about it a lot, thinks about what Venus did with Mars. Um, Venus, as you know, the goddess of love, Mars, the, goddess, the god of war. Um, Venus was supposed to be married to Hephaestus or Vulcan, who is injured, maybe a kind of eunuch for that reason. And um, he's, he's the limping god, the god of, um, uh, of, of, um, of, smith, of, of smiths. Um, and what Martin is thinking about is the full sexual interaction between Venus and Mars. Uh, Venus here would be who in the play? Who would Venus? Cleopatra. Yeah, and Mars. Antony. Okay. Okay, Cleopatra, go. Oh, Charmian, where thinks thou he is now? Stands he or sits he? Or does he walk? Or does he? Or is he on his horse? Oh, happy horse to bear the weight of Antony. What's the joke? Bravely. What's the joke there? That like she wants to bear the weight of Antony. Yeah. Yeah, so um, she's saying, boy, that horse is lucky. Antony's on top of it. Um, missionary. missionary position. Um, so um, notice the word bear again. Now it's the bearing the weight of Antony rather than bearing um, Antony's lightness or bearing idleness. Um, okay, go on, Cleopatra. Do bravely, horse, for what's to thou whom thou movest? The demi-atlas of this earth, the arm of, and burgonet of man. He's speaking now, or murmuring. Where's my, where's my serpent of old Nile, or, or so he calls me? 
Now I feed myself with the most delicious poison. Think on me that I am with Phoebus amorous pinches black and wrinkled deep in time. Broad fronted Caesar, when thou, when thou wast here above the ground, I was a morsel for a monarch. And great Pompey would stand and make his eyes grow in my brow. There would he anchor his aspect and die with looking on his life. Okay, so stop there. That's, um, that, that was great. That's um, an interesting speech. Um, so she's imagining Antony far away and what she, this is a version of our separation. So abides and flies because she's imagining him far away thinking about her. So he's speaking now. She's wondering where he is, where he is. That is again, notice the word where, where thinkest thou he is now and she's thinking what he is asking is, where's Cleopatra? So where's Antony? He's somewhere where he's um, speaking or murmuring, where's my serpent of old Nile? Um, that serpent of old Nile, of course, is going to come back at the end of the play as the asp. For so he calls me, now I feed myself with most delicious poison. That's like the mandragora that she's wanted. And then um, think on me. I don't think that should be a question mark. That should be a period at the end of it. Think on me that am with Phoebus amorous pinches black and wrinkled deep in time. So think of me um, and um, love me. Not that I'm young and fair the way Roman and British or English um, canons of taste say women should be, but he loves me. Even though um, I am old and dark, um, I'm the one he loves. Then broad-fronted Caesar refers to Julius Caesar. That is, Julius Caesar was famous for, be, for bal being balding, um, for having a very uh, high forehead. So... When you were alive, so notice now it's not Antony who's being apostrophized. Remember um, that word apostrophe. Um, it's not Antony who's being apostrophized, but it's the previous generation, Octavius's uh, adopted father, his uncle. Broad-fronted Caesar, when thou wast here above the ground, I was a morsel for a monarch. That is, when you were alive, I was a morsel for you. See, Julius Caesar himself was in love with me. And so was great Pompey. He would stand and make his eyes grow in my brow. He would just look at her and look at her. There would he anchor his aspect and die with looking on his life. So um, the uh, Cleopatra has had an affair with these two other great figures, Pompey the Great, Probably not in reality, but that's probably what Shakespeare, um, how Shakespeare understood the history. And with Julius Caesar, which was in reality. And um, now there's Antony. And one of the things she's saying is, um, I'm worth it. All the greatest figures in the world wanted me. And Antony is now the greatest figure in the world. And... I'm imagining how he wants me. Okay, Alexa, Alexis, um, volunteer. Nicole, you can be Alexis. How's that? 
sovereign of Egypt, hail. How much unlike art thou, Mark Antony, yet coming from him, that great medicine hath with his tinct gilded thee. How goes it with my brave Mark Antony? Last thing he did, dear queen, he kissed the last of many double kisses, this orient pearl. His speech sticks in my heart. Mine ear must pluck it thence. Good friend, quoth he, say the firm Roman to great Egypt sends this treasure of an oyster at whose foot to mend the, the petty present. I will peace her opulent throne with kingdoms. All the east say thou shall call her mistress. So he nodded and soberly did mount an armed gaunt steed who neighed so high that what I would have spoke was beastly dumped by him. What, was he sad or merry? Like to the time of the year, between the extremes of hot and cold, he was nor sad nor merry. So so remember oh. remember earlier she said, if you find um, him sad, tell me I am merry, tell him I am dancing, um, if um, merry that I'm sullen sick. So she pays attention to his moods, but now she really wants to know what his mood is. I also want to want to draw your attention to what he says. Um, he's sending her a pearl and he says to mend this petty present. It's only a symbol. It's only a pearl after all. I will peace her opulent throne with kingdoms. Um, he is going to echo that much later on when um, in lines that I draw your attention to now in which he says, um, uh, you do mistake me. Um, I spake this for your comfort did desire you to burn this night with torches. So that um, idea that he's going to offer something which will be a celebration, just the form of those words, I will peace her opulent throne with kingdoms, did desire you to burn this night with torches. Um, there's going to be a vague subliminal memory of this as the way Antony speaks. Okay, Cleopatra, go on. A well-divided... Okay. A well-divided disposition. Note him. Note him, good Charmian. Tis the man, but note him. He was not sad, for he would shine on those that make their looks by his. He was not merry, which seemed to tell him, tell them his remembrance lay in Egypt with his joy, but between both. O heavenly mingle, beest thou sad or merry, the violence of either thee becomes, but does it no man's else. So does it no man else. So, so does it no man's else. Yeah, you're beautiful yes. no matter what mood you're in, which is what he said to her before. Fie wrangling queen whom everything becomes. So you all know what becomes means there. That is everything um, uh, makes you look attractive. Everything makes you look attractive. Now she says the same to, um, says the same about Antony. Okay, mess out my posts, Alexis. I, madam, twenty several messengers. Why do you send so thick? Who's born that day when I forget to send to Antony shall die a beggar. Okay, Inca stop, stop, stop. So notice the word beggar is appearing again. Um, the, Antony has said earlier there's beggary in the love that can be measured. Um, here we have another use of the word beggar, and we'll see it several more times. A uh, very interesting word in the play. Go on, Cleo. Ink and paper, Charmian. Welcome, my good Alexis. Did I, Charmian, ever love Caesar so? Oh, that brave Caesar. 
be choked with such another emphasis. Say the brave Antony. Sylvanian Caesar. Hey, Isis, I will give thee bloody teeth if thou with Caesar paragon again, my man of men. By your most gracious pardon, I sing but after you. My salad days when I was green in judgment, cold in blood, to say as I said then, but come away, get me ink and paper. He shall have every day a several greeting, or I'll unpeople Egypt. Okay, so that's um, that's a great final speech in the scene. My salad days. That is when I had no idea what love was. Um, my salad days might mean one interpretation is before I learned to eat really good food and I was just eating salad um, before pizza was invented. Um, or I think what it means is um, the days of greenness. Um, when I was green in judgment, that is um, new in judgment. I didn't really know how to judge. What do you think salad days means, Laura? Um, exactly. Well, it's, it's, it's the green that tells you what it means. Yeah, that's what I think, too. Dover Wilson thinks it means before I learned to eat meat. Oh. No. Okay, Laura thinks that's ridiculous. And she's the house expert on it in Cleopatra, for sure. Um, so... My salad days when I was green in judgment, cold in blood to say as I said then. So they're teasing her, which again means that they get her. That teasing Cleopatra, it's not, oh, Antony's away, we're so sad. Um, it's that when she thinks of Antony, she's in a mood, she's in a teasing mood. And it's part of um, who she is and what her love is like that it doesn't have to be um, oh, I'm such a deep, deep person and love for me is deep and there's nothing um, funny or lighthearted about it. Um, green in judgment means that I judged like someone without experience. Um, to be green means to be a rookie, to be new at things. Um, so my judgment wasn't very good. Yeah, when I loved Caesar, I didn't know what love was. That's what she's saying. Um, if I, th I must have been cold in blood if um, I thought that what I felt for Caesar was love, then I was just a cold person. But now he's going to have messengers all the time, and I will use every single person in Egypt um, to send him a message if I need to. So in this play with lots of messengers, um, here is a place where she says, um, uh, um, that that uh, as many messengers as she needs, she'll use. Um, is being green um, as being jealous, is that relevant? Um, it's not too modern because uh, um, Iago has says, beware of jealousy, the green-eyed monster that mocks the meat it feeds on. So green is the color of jealousy was, it's not the only color of jealousy at the time. So it's now we think of green with envy as the color of envy. Um, there were other colors that were also associated with jealousy. So it wouldn't, um, uh, it, you wouldn't automatically think jealousy, although you might, um, green with jealousy makes sense, but I think you wouldn't automatically think it. Um, but I do think green as in um, not yet ready to burn, which is what the metaphor is, that the reason if you're, if you're new, you're green, means you're young, 
and green wood is precisely wood that has to be aged before it can burn. So one of the things she's saying is, yeah, I was cold because I couldn't burn at the time um, because I was green in um, my feeling for other people. Okay, believe it or not, we finished Act 1. So if we... Um, if we continue an exponential rise, I know that's not a mathematical term that you guys have been thinking about recently, um, we may actually manage to finish the play by the end of the semester, which will be great. Um, we w obviously will finish it one, um, one way or another, but I think it's actually good to be going through it line by line. Um, so um, let me show you the bird um, before you all sign off. Um, Okay, you guys, have a good weekend. Stay healthy. Stay sane. Um, say it again? Sorry, sorry, I just have one question after class. Okay, all right. So if you have a question, just stay on. Okay, you guys. Um, good weekend and take care.